book, Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, is a 1678 Christian allegory written by John Bunyan. The entire book is presented as a dream sequence told by an omniscient narrator. The allegory's protagonist, Christian, is an everyman character, and the plot centers on his journey from his hometown, the city of destruction, which is this world, to the celestial city or heaven, which is that which is to come. Christian is weighed down by a great burden, which is the knowledge of his sin that comes from reading the Bible. This burden, which would cause him to sink into hell, is so unbearable that he seeks deliverance. And the book is a journey that Christian takes to be delivered from that burden of sin. Along his journey, he meets a lot of different people, from evangelists who points him to the shining light, for de- to the shining light for deliverance, to Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Mr. Legality, and his son, Civility, who tried to deliver him from his burden by trusting in his own good deeds to remove it. Later, Christian is directed forward by Goodwill, who is shown to be Jesus, to the place of deliverance. Christian finally reaches that place of deliverance, which is allegorically the cross of Calvary and the open sepulcher of Christ, where the straps that bound Christian's burden to his back break off and rolls away into the open sepulcher. So after being relieved of his burden of sin, Christian continues on his pilgrimage to meet people such as sloth, hypocrisy. He spends three days in the house of the palace beautiful, which is a place built by God to refresh pilgrims and godly travelers, and he leaves there clothed with with the armor of God. Christian meets faithful in the valley of the shadow of death, who ends up being burned at the stake as a martyr. He goes to a place called Lucre, where he is offered all the silver in the mine. He gets captured by despair and taken to the Doubting Castle, where he is imprisoned, beaten, and starved. He uses a key called Promise to unlock the castle and escape. Christian meets some shepherds who warn him about the flatterer, but he is soon deceived and gets stuck in his net. He meets an atheist who tells him that heaven and God do not exist. Along the way, he meets up with Hopeful, who shares the journey with Christian. He meets ignorance who believes that he will be allowed into the celestial city through his own good deeds, rather than as a gift of God's grace. And finally, even though he has a rough time because of his past sins wearing him down, he is welcomed into the celestial city with the help of his friend, Hopeful. So as I thought about this story, it made me think of my story. Now, when I was saved at age seven, I didn't remember being weighed down by a burden of sin. But I understood that I was a sinner in need of a savior. But maybe some of you here this morning can more identify with this first part of Christian's story and have had that feeling of being weighed down by a burden of sin and then being relieved from that burden when you gave your life to Christ. But the second part part of Christian's story, the one after he was relieved from his burden, until he enters the celestial city, is one that all of us, as Christians, can identify with. So I want you to think about your pilgrimage of faith and some of the people that you've met along the way. You you probably heard of stories of faithful saints who have given their lives for the cause of Christ. You've probably met hypocritical people. Maybe you've been captured by despair and had to use the key of God's promises to get set free. Maybe you've met someone who did not believe in God and it made you question your faith or question the existence of God. 
And maybe you've met ignorant people who think that God's, he's just going to let them into heaven because of their own good works. And then maybe you've also had friends that have helped you along the way through your pilgrim's progress. I use the word pilgrim to define those who are on a journey of faith in a foreign land. You know, we know that the pilgrims came over to the New World from England to find religious freedom. They were strangers in a strange land, and they traveled a long way to be able to worship the way they saw fit. You know, we are also strangers in a strange land. And Jesus has called us as Christians to be in this world, but not of this world. This means that as we make the pilgrims from this world to that which is to come, we're to live here, but not live the same way that the world lives. And this is where the pursuit of holiness comes in. You know, in our pursuit of holiness, we progress from the milk of the word, which is the basic elemental teachings of Christianity, to the meat of the, world, of the word, which is the deeper, more complete teachings of God's word. We also progress from the old way of talking, doing, and thinking, to a new way of talking, doing, and thinking. And Jesus is the model for our pursuit of holiness. So this morning, we're going to continue the story of another pilgrim who's traveling in a strange land. You know, Pastor Stewart has already recounted to us the beginning of the story of Abram and how he was called out of his country, from his people, and from his father's household. Along the way, he seemed to resist God's call for 25 years, and then once his father passed away, he continued on to the land of Canaan, where he built altars to the Lord. We saw last week that Abram's pilgrimage to Egypt uh, happened because of famine in Canaan. And if you remember, Abram asked Sarai to tell a half-truth so that the Egyptians wouldn't kill him. But he didn't seem to worry about Sarah being taken into Pharaoh's harem. But God was faithful, even though Abram was faithless, and delivered Sarah from being defiled. In fact, God delivered Abram, his wife, and everything he had from Pharaoh and from Egypt. And this included all the material possessions that he had the cattle, the donkeys, the male and female servants, and camels that were given to Abram some while he was even there. So in our scripture this morning, we're going to see that Abram is making progress in the spiritual journey that he's on. We've seen him make some bad choices in the past, but this week we're going to see him make some good choices, not only the way he deals with his nephew Lot, but also in his relationship with God. He's growing spiritually, he's progressing in his faith, He's pursuing holiness that can be seen in the choices that he makes. That brings us to our big idea this morning, which is our pursuit of holiness is seen in the choices that we make. All the time we're confronted with with the choice whether we're going to follow God and his word or we're going to follow the world. If we're going to follow the straight and narrow path to the celestial city or if we're going to follow the wide road of the city of destruction, We will, just like Abram, have our ups and downs. We're going to make good choices. We're going to make bad choices. But it's important to our spiritual growth that we daily choose to pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness is vital in our Christian walk as we strive to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Before we dive into our scripture this morning, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come upon us This morning as we open your word, show us the truth of your word. Let it guide us in our daily walk with you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to make the right choices 
as we strive to be more like your son, Jesus, and pursue holiness daily. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three points to our passage this morning. Rededication, resolution, and revelation. The first point is rededication. That's found in Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. This is what God's word says. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So we saw at the end of last week's sermon that Abram was essentially escorted out of Egypt with everything he had, including his wife, all his possessions, the donkeys, cattle, male and female servants, and camels. We also notice that this includes his nephew Lot. Lot has, been, has not been mentioned since Abram left Haran to go to Canaan. And he's not mentioned in the episode in Egypt, but now he's brought to our attention again because he's going to play a major role in, in this part of the story, just as Sarai did in the last one. So we notice that Abram and his entourage leave Egypt to go up to the Negev, which again is going back to the way he came. He's going back to Canaan, back to the promised land. We also notice that Abram is a rich man. He's accumulated livestock and silver and gold. And a lot of it has probably come from his time in, in, in Egypt. God has been faithful to Abram, even when Abram had been faithless. And even though Abram made some bad choices, God has still blessed him. We also see that his pilgrimage continues as he goes from the Negev to between Bethel and I. He's going back to the place where he had built an altar before and where he had previously called on the name of the Lord. You know, the, the altar is still there, perhaps implying that the promises still stand too. As we look back, it's interesting that the whole time that he was in Egypt, we aren't told that he built an altar at all or ever called on the name of the Lord. So it seems, he seems to be repenting of his faithfulness in Egypt, his faithlessness in Egypt. And again, he's worshiping the God who called him out of paganism and into the promised land. He's progressed spiritually from half-truths and relying on his own strength to again calling on the name of the Lord. He's made a good first choice to return where he last met with God. This choice shows that he's pursuing holiness. He's trying to do what is right. In fact, he's probably rededicating his life to the Lord here. So we all can learn an important lesson here about returning to God and rededicating ourselves to him. Maybe this morning you're at the same point in your life that he is. Maybe you strayed from God. Maybe you made some bad choices in your life lately. Maybe you recognize the fact that you haven't been pursuing holiness daily or at all. And if so, this first next step may be for you to rededicate myself to God and making right choices and daily pursuing holiness again. Our second point this morning is resolution. And that's found in verses 5 to 13. This is what God's word says. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. 
So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. So we see as Abram is pilgrims from the Negev to Bethel and I, Lot continues to go with them. It may have been that Lot was considered to be Abram's heir at this time. So he traveled, he stayed with Abram and Sarai. Lot is proper, prospered as a result of being a, rel, a relative of Abram and part of his entourage in the previous story that we saw. <clears throat> so earlier we're told that Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and silver and gold. And here we're told that Lot has been wealthy in flocks and herds and tents. So they're both wealthy in livestock. But where Abraham was wealthier overall with silver and gold, Lot had wealth in tents, which probably meant servants and possibly family units. Next we see that a problem arises because of Abram's and Lot's possessions. And the problem came as a result of the livestock, the flocks and the herds that they had. And it's ironic that the blessings that the Lord bestowed upon Abram and Lot, which came as a result of the bad choices that Abram made in Egypt, has become the source of strife. They both have accumulated so many possessions that were told twice that they could not remain together because the land could not support the two of them in the same place. The herds had become so huge that there wasn't enough good grazing land for both of them. And the strife came as a result of Abram's and Lot's herdsmen, each looking out for their own employer, employer's flocks. We're also told that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land which alerts us to a couple of different things. First, this land is not Abram's and Lot's. There are other indigenous peoples already living there, and this would have already stretched the grazing land pretty thin. Second, if these peoples saw that the foreigners were not united, they may have taken this opportunity to take by force what Abraham and Lot had. And third, the strife between their herdsmen would hurt Abram's and Lot's witness. So if you remember, Abram had put up an altar and called upon the name of the Lord in this land. And this probably did not go unnoticed to the pagan peoples living there. So it's possible that Abram had his witness in mind as he makes another good choice. He shows that he's growing in his character. He's relying on God. He's pursuing holiness. And he refers to himself a lot as brothers. He's appealing to the relationship between kin that should make forgiveness and restoration simpler. You know, he doesn't want strife with his brother. So he puts forth a resolution to the problem that they find themselves in. He proposes that they separate. And he asks Lot to look to the right and to the left and for him to take first choice of the land. So whatever was left over, Abram would take. You know, he's speaking in faith, believing that the land was his to give away. But it is a very interesting choice on his part. 
First, if Lot decides to leave, it would effectively leave Abram without an heir. Second, Lot could have, could have selected the promised land, which would have negated at least some of the Lord's promise to him. So maybe Abram thought that Lot would want to stay with Abram, live together peacefully, or maybe Abram thought Lot would turn him down and would go back and say, you know, you, you take first choice. Because if you remember, Abram was older, and he would have been the elder statesman of the family. But his choice shows a wise, generous, and peacemaking heart. He is trusting God. He's leaving it in his hands, knowing that he is in control of all things. But we also see the choice that Lot makes. And it kind of tells us a lot about where his spiritual growth and where his pursuit of holiness is at the time. First glance, we might think that he made a good choice. You know, he looked out at the Jordan Valley. He saw that it was well watered, which would have been good for his flocks and his herds. The valley reminded him of the Garden of Eden, and, and it reminded him of Egypt that he had just left. You know, he's probably thinking, if I take that land, I won't have to worry about famine again. But we soon learn, as the first hearers did, that the choice Lot makes was not a good one. We can see that Lot reminds us of Eve and that he looked and saw that the land was good. If you remember, Eve looked at the forbidden fruit and saw that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye. You know, a lot of times when we make bad choices that get us into trouble, it happens with our eyes. We live in an age in which the ways of the world are increasingly entering our eyes, increasingly entering our minds through our eyes. Especially with the TV and the internet, our eyes are flooded with images of things that oppose God and contradict his teachings. They contradict his purpose for our lives. So we need to remain ever vigilant in guarding our eyes for what the world has to offer. <clears throat> we also see that the author gives us insight about the, the land that Lot chose. He chose the land of Sodom and Gomorrah because, you know, it looked good on the outside, but that would change after it was destroyed by God. In fact, afterwards, it would not be so appealing. You know, God destroyed that land so well that even to this day, archaeologists can't find it. They can't find the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Second, to look to the right and to the left was essentially to look to the north and the south. But we find that Lot looked east, and he chose that land for himself, and that he actually journeyed east towards Sodom. Now, we've seen throughout Genesis that the direction of east means going away from the presence of God. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden eastward. Cain, after killing Abel, went eastward. And the builders of Babel went east to the plain of Shinar, where they built the Tower of Babel and they rebelled against God. We also notice that Lot even pitched his tent near Sodom. And later on, we're going to find out that he actually lived in Sodom as one of their own. And then at the very end of this section, we're given a hint as to why God destroyed Sodom. It says, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And this reminds us of people before the flood and tells us that they should deserve the same fate. Matthew says, great sinners is a uniquely Hebrew phrase meaning one-of-a-kind sinners. They are sinners that are a corrupting influence on society, whose sins are a violation against humanity and are, and are opponents to God. Phillips helps us to understand Lot's spiritual condition at this point in his life. 
He says, quote, he was weak in his devotions, worldly in his desires, and wrong in his decisions. Lot may not have known in the beginning what the people of Sodom were like, but he should have realized it as he pitched his tent near Sodom. And it would have been unmistakable after he moved into the city. And we also know from later stories that he chose to continue to live there right up until it was destroyed. So what can we learn from Lot and the choices that he made to pitch his tent towards Sodom? Lot chose the physical over the spiritual. He chose the easy and comfortable life. He didn't make his decisions through the eyes of faith and didn't consider the moral or eternal cost of his decisions. And this story should move us to ask ourselves some hard questions this morning. Are we making choices based on what we see, hear, feel, and enjoy? Are we making decisions pressured by our circumstances? Are we choosing the things of this world or the things of God? Are we seeking to be in control of our own lives or submitting our lives to the will of God? Are we willing to submit our speech, our thoughts, and our actions to being more like Christ in the world? Our pursuit of holiness is seen in the choices that we make. And this brings us to the second next step this morning, which is to not pitch my tent near Sodom, but to claim the promised land that God freely gives me. And we then see that Abram lived in the land of Canaan. In fact, when Lot chose Sodom, it actually took him outside the promised land. That meant that God's promise of the land to Abram was still intact. Abram had made the right choices. He's pursued holy living. And now in our next section, God's going to give him a fuller revelation of his promise to him. Our third point this morning is revelation, and it's found in verses 14 to 18. This is what God's word says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. As soon as Lot makes his choice and separates from Abram, God comes to Abram. He reiterates his promise again, showing that God approved of Abram's treatment of Lot. God then rewards Abram's choices with a fuller revelation of his promise to him. Last week we saw that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. This week we see that when God is, even when we are faithful, God is faithful. You know, God is the same today, tomorrow, and yesterday. He doesn't change. We're the ones that change. God then fleshes out the promises that he had made to Abram before. First, the land is more precisely defined. God is not going to just give his descendants some land. God is going to give his descendants all the land that he can see in every direction. In the Hebrew, we notice that the Lord asks Abraham, he says, Please look to the north, the south, the east, and the west. Only four times in the entire Old Testament does God use the word please in addressing a human being. And every time God is asking someone to do something that transcends human comprehension. 
We see this when God asked Abram to believe that his wife Sarah will have a son at her advanced age. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son. When God asked the Israelites to ask their masters in Egypt for gold and silver and clothing as they were getting ready to leave. And then finally here. Also, God not only promises the land to his descendants as before, but to Abram as well. And that this land would be theirs forever. This reminds us of the promise of the rainbow that God gave Noah. It was for all people and for all time. God also expands the promise of descendants. Abram is not just going to have an heir and some offspring, but his descendants would number the dust of the earth. You would not even be able to count it. And lastly, God gives Abraham the land and to take possession of it by walking through it. This process would have been the equivalent of measuring the land. And in ancient times, taking the measure of something was a sign of ownership. Abraham had neither the land nor the descendants to give it to at this time. Yet he continues to wait on and trust on the Lord. Lastly, we see that Abram moves his tent by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. Now, Hebron would become the patriarch's center of operations for many years to come. The cave of Machpelah near Hebron will be the first piece of real estate purchased by Abram, and that will be where all the patriarchs are buried. The religious significance of this place is emphasized by the fact that he builds an altar there. This episode began with Abram making the right choice to rededicate himself to the Lord. He, go, he went and worshipped at the altar that he had previously built there. And it ends the same way, as he chooses again to worship the Lord by building an altar in Hebron. As I conclude this morning, I want to talk about two words that truly describe Abram. First word is tense. You know, Abram was a literal pilgrim as he traveled from Ur to Canaan as a stranger in a strange land. He's also the prototypical spiritual pilgrim and that this earth was not his home. Along the way, he learned obedience and patience, and he had extraordinary experiences with the one true God. He trusted in God, he went where God told him to go, and he did what God told him to do. He may have had a lot of questions along the way, but he didn't seem to ask them, and God did not answer them. God promised, Abram believed, God commanded, Abram obeyed. Second word is altar. You know, it's not the stones that matter, but it's the intent of the heart. An altar is a sacred place where we meet with God. But it's not just another place where we meet with another person who is on the same level as us. It's where we meet the omnipotent, eternal, and most high God. It's a place where we must approach God with total respect and honor because there's no one like our God. We don't worship him because he needs it, but because we are moved by who he is and what he's done for us. The altar is a place of sacrifice. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, King David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. We must sacrifice all that we have, and all that we have is ourselves. It's our hearts, our wills, our minds. We must submit all of ourselves to him in his service. The fire does not fall on an empty altar. The fire falls on a sacrificial lip 
sacrificial life offered to God. And the altar is also a place of revelation. God revealed himself to the patriarchs and prophets and established covenants at altars when they sought him. If we want God to do the supernatural and reveal himself to us, we need to have regular meetings with God. Hebrews 11.6 says, He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And lastly, the altar is a place of fellowship and intercession. 